brought to you by Penguin. Hello, I'm Nihal Arthanayake, and this is the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. You're listening to the second of our two end-of-year specials, where we look back at some of the highlights of 2022. So put your feet up, pour yourself an eggnog, and enjoy some selected cold cuts from the Penguin Podcast. It has been a bumper crop this year. Bonnie Garmus, Sally Vickers, Benjamin Zephaniah, Greta Thunberg... And they're just some of the authors we couldn't squash in. The full conversations are all available on this feed. Go get them if you haven't already. In this episode, you'll hear from pulp legend Jarvis Cocker about his first foray into book writing, Good Pop, Bad Pop. The chef, Asma Khan, shares the rationale behind the all-female kitchen at her restaurant. Hanif Abdurraqib talks about being treated like a representative for all of black America. Lisa Jewell reminisces about her youth in the 80s, 90s. And Ian McEwan reflects on a life spent writing and the prospect of coming to terms with its end. In June, Izzy Sutty met up with the pulp frontman and musical icon Jarvis Cocker. His book, Good Pop, Bad Pop is a sort of biography made up of stories about objects rediscovered in a loft, which is just about perfect for this podcast. They talked about gum, his old school exercise books, and intriguingly, how traffic cones play different roles for different people. You know, the easy way to do it would have just been to get a skip and chuck it all in a skip straight away and say, hey, I'll put your stuff in there now. But I just kind of knew somewhere at the back of my mind that I shouldn't do that, that I should look at it all and that there was some kind of story lying in wait for me there. And it, and it turned out that to be true. What were the other strands? Can you remember that when you came up with that first, were they things like The Loft, like tickets to gigs uh, and stuff? No, no, it was more... I have been doing this PowerPoint presentation thing for a while. There was one section that dealt with traffic cones. <laughs> There's a bit of it still in the book, you know, this idea that everybody is creative. In fact, that is what makes us human, you know, that we take in information about the world and we organise it within our skulls in a certain way. And that's a creative act because what we remember and what we don't and what we combine is is kind of creation, you know, and, and we're the only species that can do it, you know. Dogs don't do it. So th- there was a bit of that. And, and the way that I tried to illustrate that was through this visualisation of a traffic cone. So I said, everybody, close your eyes and visualise a traffic cone. So then people would do that. And I'd say, OK, now, some of you may be thinking of a traffic cone just as something that directs traffic on a road. Some of you who went to university or college might think, oh, yeah, my friend Jez used to have one of those in the corner of his flat as a <laughs> yeah, light. Or that's something. what I was thinking. Yeah, there you go. And then other people who are a bit more arty, whatever, might think, oh, yeah, Kraftwerk had like a traffic cone on the cover of their first two albums. And then somebody who likes to download dubious internet content might think of this app, I think it's called VLC, I always want to say VPL, but it's not, um, VLC, which is like you can play any ripped video thing on it, So, and its symbol is a traffic cone. So that, that was my idea, that we all kind of are in the same world, we're all seeing the same world, but the way that we then construct it within our heads is different, and that's a creative act. I really like Are you that. sold? 
I am sold. I think that's got to be a separate book. (laughs) That line runs throughout the book, even though you haven't got the traffic cones in there. I think the brilliant thing about the loft is you've got such a variety of stuff in there. But that stuff about creativity is part of the bed of, of the book to me. I love the bit where you talk about how you were hosting a music class for kids and the way the kids approach the instrument is so different from when you're an adult because they'll look at it. They don't necessarily know how to play it, but they'll work out the best way that they can get a noise from it. Mm, usually the most amount of noise possible. Yeah. <laughs> don't you say that initially there's this cacophony of noise and then it dies down? Yeah, I mean, that's it. You, if you're doing a, I haven't done that many, but if you're doing a music class with kids, you give them the instruments, and then I just put my fingers in my ears for the first 10 minutes because they're just going... <laughs> and then eventually, you know, their arms start to get tired or they're giving themselves a headache or getting bored. And then you can kind of say, well, look, let's all try and make something happen. In the book, you know, I, I remember, you know, I've got this cassette of one of Pulp's very first rehearsals, and it's just so unlistenable. You know, it's just like we went round to my grandma's house because they had like an electric organ in the corner. So we had that on. I had this guitar. And then we didn't have drums, so somebody was hitting the coal scuttle with the kind of, you know, that thing that you brush ashes off the hearth with. Yeah. And it's just like that for 20 minutes. I mean, it's horrible. <laughs> and it's like a competition to see who can make the most noise. Coal scuttle kind of wins out because it's a bit metallic. Because we just didn't know. We, we knew that we wanted to be in a band, but we had no musical ability i guess we thought that something like a song would magically appear but it didn't yeah like you're putting all the ingredients in so it's only a matter of time before it magically comes about yeah it was a nice thing to believe as we were doing that there was just this one bit where a shaft of sunlight kind of shone through the curtains and it dazzled us all and we just had to stop and then i went ah the sun and suddenly in the middle of all this cacophony there's something where everything happens at the same time and that was a clue that, like, that's what a band's about, you know, that everybody's doing their own thing, maybe, but if you can synchronise it a bit, then it starts to become music. In March, restaurateur and cookery book writer Asma Khan was our guest. It was a fascinating conversation, ranging from the power of having an all-female crew in the restaurant kitchen to Asma's position as second daughter in an Indian family. But in this clip, Asma talks about loss and the importance of food in our rituals around death. Let's move to your next object. This is something you inherited. Inside this, get it off. You can see the silver is different because outside it's all blackened, but the inside is so pure. And it's a silver bowl with a lid, if anyone's listening. Very beautiful silver bowl with a lid on a silver dish. And yes, the outside looks completely different from the inside. Yes, inside is like brand new. It used to, when it was on my grandmother's table, it was always full of coconut oil. And just before she went for a shower, she would open this, dip her fingers in, and rub it in her scalp as a way of nourishing her hair before she put the shampoo, because she would always say, shampoos are full of chemicals. They strip everything from your scalp, the natural oils. So she would use this. And when my grandmother died, my mother was asked if she wanted anything. And she picked this and she left everything else for her sisters. And I was surprised when I heard that she took this because I thought there must be something in Ammu. She must have visualized her mother would constantly touch. And maybe Ammu felt she never touched her and she never held her. And this was something that she was in contact with every day. And I asked Ammu, I said, Ammu, I heard you took the bowl. And she said, yes, 
I took it to give it to you. And she gave it to me. So she took it from her mother's dressing table when she died and kept it, never took it out. Then the first time she saw me after my grandmother died, she gave it to me and said, you know, I want you to have it because I think you get it. I never fully asked her what she meant. I think I know what she meant. To be not loved, not celebrated, my mother scarred with all of this rose above it to be someone incredible with a deep sense of justice. And she gave it to me. I'm sorry I'm getting a bit emotional, but it is quite uh, hard to understand that she never talks about what her childhood was like, ever. I have photographs, and that's what I have in the book, but she's never talked about her dreams, her aspirations, being loved, not loved. She never talks about it, ever. But she gave this to me. It's almost like she was giving you what she's given you with the food as well. Yes. She's giving you something that's living. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is that because, you know, even though it's just like a silver bowl on a silver plate, it's very pretty, but that you know that my grandmother touched it every day, took the lid off, put her fingers in and put the oil in her hair. There's something very personal and it's something that my mother does every time I go back. The first thing my mother will do the day I come is to oil my hair. And she'll make me sit down on the floor. She'll sit on a chair and she will gently oil my hair and keep telling me, you don't look after yourself. Your hair is so dry. And the day before I leave as well, she will oil my hair and tell her, please, Asma, oil your hair. She tells me that, you know, I should continue to oil my hair. It's an Indian obsession with oiling the hair. Anyone who's Indian will understand this. There's something that mothers do. And they don't tell you that they love you, but they will sit and oil your hair each strand with the patience and time, which is so hard to describe. You feel that all that emotion in that gesture. And I was very confused for a while that, is this what I want to talk about? Because it's very raw. It's something I've inherited, which I've never talked about. I didn't even mention it in the book. But I thought I should be brave. And as it's not somewhere where even if I did cry, uh, no one will see it. Uh, this is why I, I, I got it to show it to you. I'm so pleased that you shared it with us. It's so special. And I think when someone's passed away, an object that you take is infused with meaning. Yes. And it could be an old fork or a cracked mirror. It's what it means, isn't it? Yeah. Do you think food has a similar power to objects to help with grieving? Absolutely. And just before the pandemic, I had gone to a refugee camp where I was cooking with Syrian refugee women. It took a while before I realised that the person who was the main cook was cooking a dish that she had not cooked for a long time because it was her son's favourite. She lost her entire family in the morning in Damascus. And she thought that as I was her guest, she would make that dish. She wept throughout while making that dish. But when the dish was ready, she served it and then she danced and she sang. All the kind of, the rolling of the tongue, this Arab thing where they call from the tongue, which is bringing good luck. She made those sounds as I ate so that I would enjoy this dish. 
And I know how much she wept when she made it. Food is the greatest balm for broken souls. Lisa Jewell was our guest in August to talk about the release of her amazing new book, The Family Remains. She talked to Izzy about her writing journey, which started with a bet over dinner. But before that, they got onto the subject of John Peel. And this is really weird because I have somewhere um, a few shoeboxes full of the cassettes that I kept from my teenage years. I don't know how old you are, Izzy, but I'm old enough to remember being a teenager. We had everything well, to... Yeah, I'm 43, so, so I think do, we're do you, probably around the same... Do you remember yeah. cassettes and vinyl? Absolutely. Yes, and record, yeah. recording things off the radio by actually putting the cassette recorder next to the radio. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So I've got a couple of boxes of old cassettes, and most of them are ones that are recordings they're blank cassettes that used to buy multi-packs of from wh smiths and then record various things onto them but so most of my music was vinyl but this is a rare cassette and it's you can't hide your love forever by orange juice and i think if any band sums up the sort of music that i was listening to when i was a teenager orange juice is it you know, when people talk about the 80s, it's all, oh, Madonna and Culture Club and leg warmers and, and fingerless gloves and neon. And I just wasn't that teenager in the 80s. I was absolutely not that teenager. I was into indie music. The more obscure, the better. I used to listen to John Peel every night. I used to write to John Peel a lot. And he invited me to his studio one night to watch him recording. And then he double booked me and I got there with my friends and we had to go home again. And that was very sad. But it did mean that um, John Peel called my house a couple of times and I had my mum call. I was listening to John Peel in my bedroom at the top of the house and I heard my mum calling up the stairs, Lisa, I've got John Peel on the phone for you. (laughs) But yes, I never actually got to meet him, sadly. And so, yes, I don't know how this cassette, this cassette was in the cassette player of my old car, my Ford Focus, I don't know what it was doing in there, how it ended up in there. And then it, when I bought a new car, I took it out of the Ford Focus and put it in the back of a drawer. And it's, so it's just this sort of random cassette floating around my house. But every time I look at it, I just feel joy. I feel happy. I feel like it just sort of smells and looks like my teenage years in my bedroom when I was just discovering this incredible world of music and alternative music. And I felt like I was on this voyage of discovery the whole time and listening to things that nobody else was listening to. And so that's my orange juice cassette. I was a receptionist at the time with a few creative writing classes under my belt. But thankfully, thank God, there was this one night on the holiday where everybody else had gone to bed apart from me and this girl called Yasmin, who is a friend of my husband's. And she was a journalist at the time. She's now an astrologist. And just before I went on this holiday, I'd lost my job at Thomas Pink. So I was unemployed again. So she asked me what I was going to do when we got back from holiday and I was in London without a job. And I said, I'm going to sign up with some temping agencies. And she said, some people use redundancy as an opportunity to sort of change the direction of their life. Is there not something at this point in your life that you've always wanted to do? And I found myself saying it was four in the morning. I was drunk. It was audacious. Uh, But I'm so glad I said it. I said, I think I might like to write a novel. And she made me take a bet on it. And we shook hands. And she said, you don't actually have to write the whole novel. She said, why don't you just try writing three chapters? And if you do that, I'll take you out for dinner to your favourite restaurant. And uh, so we did. We got back to London. 
Uh, my husband, being a geek, had a home computer, which was quite unusual in those days. Uh, so I used his home computer and wrote the three chapters of the book. And those were the first three chapters of Ralph's Party, which was my first novel. So, yes. Do you think you would have still done it if you hadn't had that conversation or if she hadn't been on that holiday, say? No. I guess because I did this creative writing course and that guy had said the thing about you've got a very commercial voice. Because this was pre-Bridget Jones. This was pre that whole boom in women's fiction, women's commercial fiction written by young women. And previous to that, most of the women's fiction I'd read had been like older women. And so I think I thought this is something that you do when you're an older woman, when you've had your children and you've had your life and you've made your mistakes and you've learnt your lessons and you've been ill and then you've got stuff to write about. So I think I'd always put it as as sort of out there somewhere, a thing that I would do when I had something to write about. I suppose that was the high fidelity thing of just thinking, you don't need anything to write about. You can just have, <laughs> I could just, you know, write, write about my ex-boyfriends and there, there's an entire novel in it. So I think I wouldn't have done it then at all, no. And having not done it then, I have no idea if that was a sliding doors moment and then I would not have done it at all maybe life would have got in the way and I could have got to the age I am now, which is probably the age I thought I would be if I was ever going to write a novel and not be in the headspace or even think about writing a novel. So it wasn't just luck. It was everything, that conversation. I really believe it was. American poet, essayist and music journalist Hanif Abdurraqib joined us in July to talk about his book, A Little Devil in America, in praise of black performance. It's a reflection on the history of black performance in America, told through personal anecdote as well as a wider cultural lens. It's a powerful book which went on to win the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence. Here he is discussing the weight of and problems with being held up as a representative of black America. What did Soul Train achieve, do you think, Don Cornelius and Soul Train? Because it wasn't expected to be as big as a hit as it was. Well... You know, I can speak mostly for me and say that it was such a revelatory thing to just see Black people on TV in a very simplistic role that did not have any kind of morality exercise attached to it. You know, folks are just dancing. And that was the actual propulsive engine of the show was just like Black people dancing. That's it. And through Soul Train, you could trace an entire portion of Black history, Black fashion, Black politics, Black hair, just by watching it. Even if I watched it with no sound on, right? Like, you know, of course you're tracing Black music too, but if if I watched it with no sound on, the aesthetics of Black culture could be traced through decades just by watching Soul Train. And that to me is fascinating. It's like an archive, a really joyful archive that was built on a really simple foundation. This was, you know, I came up at a time, and I don't, again, I'm not disparaging these times either, but I came up in a time of just like the black sitcom and the black TV show. And so many of them were tied to overarching morality themes. And um, I appreciated some of that as a kid, but Soul Train blew me away because it was like, there's nothing here except for the pleasure of black people moving. And that's it. They don't have to answer to any kind of thing beyond the physicality of, of pleasure. Did you have to give yourself the space, Hanif, to explore culture beyond that which society would tell you you should be a part of? And the reason I ask that question is once 
I was hosting an event where a young black woman put her hand up and she said, I'm not into rap music. And I know you are. She said, I'm into guitar bands. And because I don't talk a certain way, I don't dress a certain way. And this is in the UK. Should that other black people feel that somehow I've sold out. Now, I know you were going to see punk bands in Detroit and Chicago. And I know you're a huge fan of Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have to give yourself that permission to do that, to be that person? No, no. Thankfully, I mean, I was very lucky in that all the people who kind of put me on to the really wide and vast range of things I came to love were Black folks. You know, coming up in the 90s with older siblings and friends who had older siblings and at the golden age of college radio, which was big here, I mean, everyone Black I knew was just listening to such a wide range of things. My brother loved metal. My sister loved grunge. Like These kind of things were filtered down to me through other Black people. So I never even, you know, on my school bus, the older kids would be passing around tapes of punk. You know, the first, like, punk tape I heard was dubbed by an older kid in my neighborhood, like an older high school kid, Black kid. And so it never occurred to me as something outside of any cultural norm or expectation because the Black people around me were filtering these things to me. I never questioned it. It was something I never questioned. It was just kind of um, a part of my life. And now, granted, I probably wasn't thinking about it this deeply at the time. But looking back, it's just, you know, an example of the many ways there are to be Black when you're in a broad and multitudinous community of people who share things, you know, who like eagerly share the things they're excited about. Now, this isn't to say that there were some, you know, of course there were kids who were only into hip hop and only into, but there was just never any kind of ridicule attached to liking anything. No. And I know that wasn't the case for everyone. I I count myself fortunate to have grown up in that way. Right. So you, by saying that, you understand that, right? And I'm not trying to patronize you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a difference. And I, I think some of this is regional, but also, you know, I was always someone who was so eager to find my people because I believe I knew, you know, even when I was young, that I would need these kind of allies. I would need the kind of black punks, you know. If I ever wanted to go to punk shows on the regular, I would need to be rolling with some black punks, and so I wanted to find them early. And and in some ways, I wanted to, to eagerly convert my friends, you know. It's that kind of thing, too, where a part of music sharing for me when I was a kid and for a lot of people around me was about building a the act of conversion, building people into converts. And so I would like sneak punk songs on all the mixes I made for my homies. And that's just how we, that was our communication point. What interests you most about people? Um, I think that we all kind of have, or at least many people have stories they can tie back to a song or an album or a piece of pop culture. I want to hear those. Those fascinate me. They allow for me to kind of um, widen the expectations I have for what music or film or TV or all these things can do. It adds kind of a a level of seriousness to something that I otherwise might brush off as frivolous, even though it's never been frivolous to me. That's almost all for this episode and this year in the Penguin podcast. But I'll leave you with a clip from an amazing conversation I had with Ian McEwen last month. He was on pensive, lyrical form as I asked him why he felt kinship with a mountain goat. Oh, yeah. So it's a little piece of ivory that someone has very expertly carved. I'm now 74. Yesterday I had an MRI scan, both my knees. I've sort of worn them out with hiking and going up and down mountains. I keep this mountain goat by my side because a long time ago when I was coming down a mountain very fast, a friend said, you are a mountain goat. You move like a mountain goat. 
And it's true. I used to be able to, I just leapt from stone to stone. I didn't walk down. I sort of leapt down. Uh, even then I was in my mid-40s. Now I can no longer do that. Uh, so the mountain goat reminds me that I, I once had some affinity with it. We'll never get it back, but it's a pleasure to look at it and be reminded. How does it become, I mean, it's a pleasure in sense of memory. Yeah. But it's also a reminder of what you can't do. So you have to make peace with that, which clearly you have made peace with. Otherwise, <laughs> presumably, you couldn't look at the goat anymore. I think when you enter your 70s, um, a great deal of your life is connecting up with things that are no longer available to you. And it's a steady preparation for complete oblivion. I remember talking to John Updike. I was asking him about death. He had said something like, I'm getting rid of nearly all of my library. I'm just going to get it down to about 50 books and I'm going to move to a smaller house. And I said, how much do you mind? Rather naive question. I said, how much do you mind that you're going to die? And he said, I don't mind as much as I used to. I minded it more in my 30s than I mind now. And I begin to get, I'm not quite there yet, but I begin to get a sense of that. And possibly it's because as bits close down, it becomes less valuable. I mean, when you're 32 or 28, the peak of your physical powers, possibly mental powers, depends in which field, the thought of death is just what it was to me, at least utterly horrifying, that this should be taken away from you. When more is taken away from you by life, then there's less to lose. Becoming less of a mountain goat is one part of letting go. The much harder thing to confront is the mental equivalent of those things. So, for example, proper names not being so immediately available, hanging out with the people in their mid-30s and just finding yourself losing track of the conversation because it's going fast, or there are some reference points that you don't get. Losing something, glasses, wallet, keys, for the third time that day. Those are more bothersome. And especially for writers, you've got to stay thought-rich. When do you stop? It was so memorable when Philip Roth announced when he was 80, maybe just past 80, that he was stopping. But I think writers are like politicians. It's difficult that politicians usually have to fail or be in disgrace before they stop. They never quit while they're ahead or they're popular. And I think writers are much the same. So I rather admired Philip's cold, hard decision on that. I think it takes guts to just decide, that's it. I'm just, the rest of my life, I'm just going to cut my toenails and take my stuff to the dry cleaners. And That doesn't strike me as a decision you're going to make. No, probably not. You've got six years to think of it. Six years, you think? You're killing me off at 80? Well, uh, no, only because you said Philip Roth did it at 80. That's the only reason. Yeah, well... I said six years. Yeah, you forget my competitive streak. (laughs) Exactly. 
And that's it for this episode and for 2022. The Penguin Podcast will be back in January and we already have some amazing authors lined up for you. Do not miss out. Don't forget to subscribe and then you'll never miss an episode. A festive gift, as it were, from us to you. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. See you next time. Yeah.